Thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, being invited to come and a report to the congregation. And I cannot tell you how much uh, it encourages me to be able to come here every single time. Have the prayers, the love that I feel, the way that uh, you surround us with uh, uh, so many encouragement. And uh, it's not a... Uh, it touches me deeply. It touches me deeply because uh, being a, a foreign missionary is not always easy. I uh, don't often talk about that, but it's true that we get uh, sometimes death threats, and it's not easy to deal with it. Uh, and when I come, it's filling you up with uh, encouragement. Thank you for all you do. Uh, we are right now working in a Strasbourg, France. I'm sorry. And you can see uh, where we're at. I just wanted to remind you a few things. We're going to have an interview, and uh, we're going to be able to talk more about it uh, in Bible class. Uh, so I'm not going to go too much into it, but some people do not always have the opportunity to stay in Bible class. And so I just wanted to still say a few things about it. Uh, you'll find that uh, France is a country about 67 million people. Uh, we have a total of only about seven churches. And... Uh, 450 Christians. I'm sorry. The prayer touched me. And uh, uh, we do need more missionaries. We do need more workers. Uh, we located on the border of Germany. And uh, uh, we're trying to do our best to reach out to the, the locals. We arrived about 15 years ago. And when we arrived about uh, 15 years ago, if we can go to the next slides, it was just me and my wife. We were supposed to go there with a team. The team didn't work out. Uh, so we ended up uh, uh, just uh, by ourselves. We started a uh, uh, church in, uh, uh, in our living room. And now we're blessed to have about 20 to 30 people that come to church. And we've had uh, 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 many others who have come through. It's Strasbourg being a gateway city. Uh, many of people come, many people go. Uh, it's the nature of uh, the town because we have a European parliament uh, located in Strasbourg. And uh, because of this, we get many politicians that come, stay for four years with their teams, and then we'll go home. We have also 53,000 students uh, in the city. Uh, the average age, uh, we've got 29% of a population that's between the age of 15 and 29. And because of that, also many come uh, for their studies and then will go away. As uh, you'll see, that's reflected in the congregation that we have. It's a, a young congregation for the most part. Uh, uh, and uh, you'll uh, find out that we're also very diverse in, uh, uh, in ethnic uh, background. And that is due to the fact that France now is a, uh, is a very diverse uh, country. Uh, we've got a one out of eight person is a Muslim in France. And uh, we've, uh, we've had a lot of immigrants that have come and uh, lived in, uh, in France. And through the years, it has changed the makeup of a population. Uh, and that's why whenever you go and you travel through Europe, you'll find that uh, oftentimes uh, 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 it feels like uh, the, the Middle East, perhaps a bit more than, uh, than if you were in a country like, uh, like America. Uh, we've got uh, the older youth that you can see of the picture, the, the younger youth also that uh, you have seen. We try to reach with various activities that deal with, uh, uh, with the age group, whether it's camp, whether it is uh, 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 outreach uh, through uh, Wednesday afternoons for the children or, or perhaps for the older one Bible studies and, uh, on campuses. Uh, and it has worked uh, pretty well. 
Uh, it's nice now to have also some older members upon whom I can rely a bit more. When you arrive in a congregation, sometimes you're stuck talking only about of issues for single persons, and it's nice, but you look forward to a time when you have families, and the congregation will get also stable this way, with people who will stay a, a longer amount of time, and uh, when you have families, and then older people, and we just started to have more elderly in our congregation not long ago, so now it broadens the spectrum on things that uh, we can preach about. And so here's a couple of things that I can stay in uh, starting. I think that for the pictures, it's about uh, all that I have from Strasbourg, if I'm not mistaken. We've got a church building, I just wanted to say. Yeah, we got from a Muslim, and it was a good thing also. Uh, and it changed the nature of our worship. We started in a home, and we now have our own worship place. And, uh, and we're very grateful for that. Which Brown brings me to my uh, sermon and uh, for my sermon, I decided today to speak about the nature of our Lord. Uh, there are many things that we can say about the nature of our Lord. If I was to ask you to take a piece of paper and write on a piece of paper something to complete the sentence that uh, you have seen a few minutes ago, it seems like the PowerPoint's having a hard time. But if you were to complete this uh, sentence, our Lord is a God of, what would you put uh, uh, afterwards? Our Lord is a God of. What is it for you? I'm starting to hear some answer already, and it's good. Some people will answer right away, he's a God of love. Uh, depending on your personality, some of you may also answer, he's a God of righteousness. Uh, others may say, perhaps he's a God of grace. I looked on the internet, seeing what some of the people would answer to that. Some say he's a God of uh, glory, uh, and the answers vary. There are really lots of words that we could add to uh, all of this uh, in the sentence, but one of the things that we could say also is that our Lord is a God of second chances. It's amazing to see how many times he gave people in the scripture a second chance, isn't it? We could talk of men like David today, uh, who committed adultery, and yet he was chosen to lead Israel and be in the Messiah's uh, lineage. We could talk of men like Abraham, who gave his wife away to find the favor of a king. And yet you know that he was chosen to be the father of all nations. We could also talk about Paul today, who was a murderer, a violent, uh, violent man, and yet he was chosen to be an apostle in the Scriptures. And I don't have enough time today to talk about all the others that uh, we find, uh, men like Jacob, men like Moses, Samson, Jonah, Peter, the list is long. They all were men that probably we would never have given a second chance. Uh, we would never have allowed them uh, to come back to our pulpit for, for many of them, and yet God used them. So this morning, since I don't have time to talk about all of them, I would just like to focus on one. And the one that I have chosen to focus about is an adulterous woman who has become, through the years, perhaps the best illustration of our God being the Lord of second chances. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 8, and we're going to be going to read that passage in a few minutes. But before that, I want to give you a, a few information about the story. For in the beginning, this story was not included in the Gospel of John. Uh, it seems that John was the one who wrote it, but it seems also that it was circulated, uh, he wrote it separately, and it was circulated at first at the end of the uh, uh, Gospel of John. It is believed to be authentic, though, and we know for sure it was in, the circula in circulation before the Apostle John died, 
which means that he could have disclaimed it if it had not been written by him. And we find that this story was uh, later on inserted in the Gospel of John where we find it in order to keep things in a chronological order for Jesus' ministry. And so some of the early Christian writers used this text many times to rebuke uh, bishops who were apparently a little too strict with sinners. And it's very interesting to find also when we read that story that John was the one who wrote it. Uh, don't forget that as we read this account, John and his brother James had what nickname from Jesus? They were called the sons of thunder. And they were called the sons of thunder because we find that in Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 55, they wanted to call down from heaven fire to be able to burn a, a, a Samaritan village because the Samaritan village had not welcomed Jesus. And yet John is going to be the one now writing about this, writing about God being the God of second chances. If you would, let's read with, uh, let, read with me verse 1 to the first part of verse 6, and let us see what the story says. When Jesus went to Mount, uh, to Mount of Olives, early in the morning he came to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribe and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. We see in this story that uh, we've got a... a uh, sexual immorality going on. Uh, what can we say today about sexual immorality? Sexual immorality has to do uh, many times with a physical relationship between two people, sexual relationship between two people who have no right to be together in God's eye. There are really two words to talk about sexual immorality in the Bible. The one word would be pornea, which is uh, translated many times as fornication, Fornication meaning an unlawful relationship between two unmarried people. And then there is another word in the Bible that is the word mokia. Mokia is the word adultery. Fornication is condemned in the Bible as well as adultery. But in this story, the sin that has been committed is the sin of adultery. If John uses the word adultery in this account, it's uh, to say that one of the two partners, at least, was married to another person which is a very important point to underline because when we deal with this story, if one has committed adultery, that means that it's going to come with a truckload of emotions. There is going to be anger and sadness in someone. There's going to be despair. Uh, it's not uh, easy to be able to deal when, with a partner who has cheated on, on you. And that is why in the Middle East, very often they will deal very swiftly with this issue as well in, in, in Eastern countries. John tells us that the lady has committed so adultery. He means betrayed confidence. He means broken trust. He means canceled promises. And probably he means also on the part of the one who's committed the sin, a big loss of self-esteem. Because most of the time when people fall into adultery, they know that they're doing wrong. And they feel very guilty deep down. And there's loss of self-esteem that goes with that. But don't mistake, adultery is a sin with terrible consequences uh, in, in life. 
How many families do you know who have been touched by this sin and destroyed by the terrible effect of adultery? How many children around you have grown up deprived of at least one of their parents, deprived of a stable home because of his detestable action? How many sexually transmitted diseases have been spread to a partner who was an innocent partner because of a lack of commitment on one of the two? You can see of the picture, I put even an image right there of how many young people carry sexual uh, 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 transmitted disease. And it's for sure that if someone cheats on his wife, at some point he's going to encounter someone who has a disease and will end up maybe passing it to his, uh, uh, to his wife that he's, uh, uh, that he's not being faithful to. And so adultery is a bad sin. And Christians should be the first to hate that sin. But don't miss what is happening in that story. Because it's not so much the sin that the Pharisees are upset at. It's the Lord that they want to condemn. For in John chapter 8, verse 6, he says that it's a trap they set for him. And it's an ingenious trap. You see, the law said in Deuteronomy chapter 22, if you have a Bible and you want to go there, Deuteronomy chapter 22, it talked about what needed to happen when one was caught in a, into that sin. And it said this, 22, 22. If a man is caught lying with the wife of another, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman as well as the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And so if Jesus right there refused to stone the girl, he's going to be seen as a lawbreaker by the Jews around him. He can be accused by the Pharisees of being a false teacher. But on the other hand, if he says stone the lady, he's going to be running head to head with the Romans authorities with prohibited the Jews to be able to administer capital punishment. So really in the text, what's happening is they are trying to put the master in a box. In a bad situation, in an impossible, uh, deal to, uh, in an impossible situation to deal with. And they seem to have found right here a great way to trap him. But they should have known better, isn't it? Because you cannot corner the Son of God. Have they tried before to corner, corner the Son of God with their questions? Sure they did. Didn't they try to do it with a question on taxes in Matthew chapter 22? Yes, they did. And did they manage to corner him? No, they didn't. Did they try to corner Jesus also on the matter of resurrection? Sure, they did. But did they manage to corner him? No, they didn't. You see, you cannot put the Son of God in a box with pitiful reasoning. Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. Jesus is so wise, no one can bring Jesus Christ down. And so we read in this story that Jesus is going to find an adequate way to deal with all of that. If you go back to John chapter 8, verse 6, he's going to do something unexpected for all of them. Here's what the second part of the verse says. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now don't miss the significance of what's taking place here. You see, the lady has been shoved like an animal into a circle the crowd has created. She's right now exposed to public shame. She's there by herself without the partner that did the act of adultery with her. Where is that man that slept with her? Why isn't he there in the circle standing by her side? Has he managed to run away when they came in to catch her? Or was he part of a plot all along to be able to get rid of Jesus? You see, it's always puzzling to me to see how women 
are usually the one dealing with the consequences of adultery. If you look what happened in the Middle East, here's how they deal with that before they stone the ladies. But very rarely will you find a man buried next to the lady and being stoned as well. The ladies are the ones often suffering the consequence. And how convenient it was for accusers to just happen to walk in on her on the day. You see, the law demanded two eyewitnesses when an act was committed that was punishable by, by death. And so then we know that the Pharisees had to be around the place for a while to be able to catch her. And you wonder, did they agree on a time to be able to walk in on her, perhaps with her boyfriends, and then decide to let him walk free afterwards? The Bible doesn't talk about all of that, but we can wonder about it. And we know for sure that they had to hide around the place for a while to catch her, a little bit like vultures would do. If today you imagine them laying on a ear, with an ear on the door, opening through the keyhole, then you're probably not too far away from the reality of what took place on that day. You see, instead of trying to change the lady, they spent all of their time trying to catch her in her sin. And you've got to wonder, why didn't they try to stop and teach her instead? Why were they so willing to invest all of their time, all of their energy to be able to punish her and yet didn't care enough to correct her? How long have they stood there watching, peeping on the two lovers? No doubt that lady must be right there in that circle, full of questions, full of fear, and full of resentment. She's been shoved right there before Jesus and stripped of any dignity, just like an animal, and now every eye is upon her, and every eye seemed to hate her and burn holes through her heart. But we read right there in the Bible that Jesus bent down and wrote, on the ground. The usual Greek word for writing on the ground is graphene. But the word you have here is not exactly that one. It is katagraphene, which means literally to write down a record against someone or to make a list of something. Maybe you see just maybe what Jesus is doing right there is writing a record of a sin that everybody else has done wrong. Perhaps he's writing down the most hideous, the most uh, uh, secret offenses they've committed. We will never know for sure what Jesus wrote down in the dust. Perhaps it was just Bible verse that was condemning them. But what we know for sure in that story is that he takes the attention away from the crowd, uh, from the lady unto himself. And he's giving at that moment the poor lady a break from her humiliation. And his silence is deafening. It's as if Jesus' heart is feeling sorrow and pity for the lady. And I learned perhaps my first lesson for us today this morning in all of that. The first lesson is that there are so much people are so much more than an instrument into God's eye. You see, the Jews may have seen the lady as a tool to reach a desired end. But Jesus saw in her a person worthy of love a person worthy of dignity and of honor, even though she was the terrible sinner. She was not in his mind just a sinner. She was a lost soul in need of reconciliation with her father. And you see, the Bible says that God cares about sinner. Have you ever noticed when you read your Bible how the Bible is full of names? You find tons of, uh, of, of, of names in the Scriptures. You don't find the prophets ever saying once there was a John Doe 
Or once a man called X did this. No, why is it? And have you ever wondered in yourself why it is so full of names? And I would like to suggest today it's because God is a personal God. Didn't he say this to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 17? I know you by your name. Didn't he tell Cyrus in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 3? It is I, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. And we find whole pages of names in the Bible. And then in John chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus will say this about the good shepherd. He says the good shepherd calls his own sheep how? By name and leads them out. You see, I tell you today, you are so much more than John Doe or an instrument in the eyes of God. You are somebody worthy of love. And that ought to be a lesson for each one of us. You see, the minute that we're going to start seeing people around us as things to use for our own gain, the spirit of Christianity is dead in us. And we no longer function into God's image. And so let's take a few minutes this morning to consider our relationship with others around us. Do I see people, do I only see the sin inside of people? Or do I see inside of them the precious soul in need of redemption? Do I only see people as tools to further my own ambition? Or am I seeing them as people worthy of being brought back to Jesus Christ? And I'm not talking here today only about the good people in our life. I'm talking about those who sometimes step on our toes. Those who hurt us with the sin that they commit. I'm asking you to think today about your relationship with those we call the terrible sinners. Those who may have hurt you very deeply. For you see, even those are worthy of your love, worthy of your time, worthy of your protection and care. Because being in Christ's image is treating people as Christ would treat people. Don't ever write people off. Don't ever stop caring about others around you. Which now brings me to my second lesson. Let us go back to John 8, verse 7 and verse 2, verse 9, and continue reading what it says. He says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Oh, I love this picture we find in the scripture. One by one, the stones thud on the ground. And one by one, the men leave. And the Bible start, says it starts with who? With the oldest on that day. Have you ever wondered why the oldest? There could be really two reasons behind it. The first is usually the oldest are the wisest. But also the second reason is the older you are, the guiltier you are in life. You see, there was a time in my own life when I was really harsh with people around me. I was young, I was 20 years old, I was self-righteous, I saw everything black and white. It was easy for me to see the fault in others. It was easy to go to someone and say, you hypocrites in what you're doing, you terrible person. And then the years have passed, and I've become older, and my responsibilities have grown, and I've made my share of mistakes, doing things even when I didn't want to, I ended up committing mistakes, and sometimes I know better and I do my mistakes. I still make mistakes each day. 
And with, with time, I've learned a great truth in all of that. I am a terrible sinner too. And so I've become so much more compassionate to others in my attitude. Time has taught me that I have my own share of sin to deal with. I think, you see, that on the day the people who were condemning the lady knew that too, reading what Jesus was writing on the ground. And that's why they all left beginning with the oldest. Who is without sin today? Let him cast the first stone, become judge and executioner, Jesus would say. You know, one of the worst faults that we have in this life is that we expect from others to live perfectly according to standards that we don't even keep for ourselves many times. We condemn harshly the faults of others, and oftentimes these faults are the very thing that plagues our own life. Oh, I'm not saying here that there's not a time for rebuke when you deal with someone who has done wrong, nor that we ought not to oppose sin in this world, but there's a way to oppose sin. And first, we need to judge righteously without hypocrisy. I love the way that a Christian writer says it, rephrasing what Jesus Christ had said. He declares this, Oh God, forgive me, for so often I having my own hands full of stones, and yet my heart being so wicked. Help me to purify my own life first, to take care of my own house before going to my neighbor's house. Help me to show pity towards those around me who sin. You see, brothers and sisters, we are not called to be moral dogs, trained to go tear sinners to pieces. But the Bible calls us to be physicians in the image of Jesus. When you go see a doctor for a skin problem, I don't know if it ever has happened to you, what does the doctor do when you show him your skin problem? Does he run away with disgust because you're sick? Does he find somebody else to deal with the issue? No, usually he does not. He comes and he treats you with care and gentleness. He doesn't think about euthanasia when he's got a disease that's bad because it he, he, he starts healing because he cannot conceive leaving us in our suffering. He gets to work and he seeks to help. If there is revulsion when he deals with things, it's quickly overcome by great compassion, by his desire to heal, by his desire to cure. And you see, when we are confronted with someone who has lived in sin, our feelings are not be, ought to not be I'll have nothing more to do with that person. Well, I'm going to make him regret all the things that he has done. Our feeling should be, what can I do to help? What can I do to gently change his thinking? Look at what Paul said to Timothy, who was going to become a minister in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I think that illustrates perfectly the attitude we ought to have. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, an apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth, and that they may escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. I have an assignment for you when you go home today. I would like for you to do this. You stop on the way and you pick a stone on the side of a road. And then try to clean that stone if you need to, to be able to keep it in your pocket. Keep it perhaps in the bottom of your purse. Keep it as a reminder every time you meet someone uh, this week with a sin that plagues his own life. 
And remember this, when, uh, when you're dealing with that person, you put your hand on, your, on that stone, and you remember, let him who has not committed a sin cast the first stone. Keep that in mind, not so that you can be more tolerant with the sin, more accepting of it, but so you might remember not to lack love when you deal with a person, not to lack mercy and pity. In a way, it's how Jesus acted towards the sinner lady, isn't it? Let us read the end of the story in John chapter 8. We're almost done. John chapter 8, verse 10 to 12 now. It says this. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. What a Savior we have. What a great love He displayed on that day. Let me ask you today, is there anyone here that has been betrayed by a husband or by a wife? I don't expect you to raise your hand. But let your spouse run around with somebody else. If so, ask yourself this question. Have you forgiven? There are lots of people in this world who have been abused. More and more as the years are going by. Ask yourself the same question. Have you forgiven the one who has abused you? Who abused perhaps one of your children? Have you forgiven those at work who may have done some harm to you? Perhaps put you into money problems? So many situations in which we could apply these words of Jesus. Have you learned to do what he did? Have you learned to forgive? Can you say like Jesus Christ, I no longer hold it against you? You see, it takes a lot of love to be able to do this. And I've seen some great ladies forgive in regard to their repentant husband. It was not easy, but they did it. And I've seen some even do it towards unrepentant husbands. And perhaps it was the road also for the husband to be led to repentance. This forgiveness that the wife showed. You see, that's what Jesus had in his heart when he used this in the story to forgive her. All the great love of God we find in the Bible. We sing it sometimes. It says, we say in the song, it glows like a flame. Through endless years, it is the same. The love of God will never fail nor lose its glory till we see him face to face. Has anyone here today committed a great sin? If so, let me tell you, God is the God of second chances. You see, His love never stops burning for you. Get away from thinking that you are only good to be thrown on the hash heap today. You are not beyond salvage for God. You aren't like in the story of Humpty Dumpty that the king couldn't put back together. How can you start all over again today if you have sinned? It's so simple. Let God wash your sins away. Peter said in the Bible, Repent each of you and be baptized for forgiveness of your sin." And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's really that simple to start new with God. All you need for a new beginning with Jesus is to go to Him and be washed in the waters of baptism. And if you've already done so and you've committed sin again, even a great sin, it's to come back to Him in repentance and pray for forgiveness. Like that lady, you need to go to Him. And He washes your sins away in His blood. But then there is the last thing that Jesus says in the text. He says also to the lady, and go, but sin no more. 
I want to finish with a little poem in the form of a prayer. It says this, Dear Lord Jesus, I confess with shame that there are times I have stood in the midst condemned. And there are times I have stood in the crowd condemning. There are times my heart has been filled with adultery. And there are times my hands have been filled with stones. Forgive me for a heart so prone to wander, so quick to forget my vows to you. Forgive me too for my eagerness in bringing you the sin of others, in my reluctance in bringing you my own sins. Forgive me for the times that I have stood smugly pharisaic and measured out judgment to others, others that I am not qualified to judge. Others who you, though, are qualified and yet refuse to. Help me to be more like you, Jesus, full of grace and of truth. Help me to live not by law but by grace, by the spirit of compassion you showed to that woman so many mornings ago. Give me, I pray, pierce conscience of the older ones in regard to the stumbling of others so that my hands may be the first to drop their stones and my feet first to leave the circle of the self-righteous. Thank you for those sweet words of forgiveness. Neither do I condemn you. Words that float so freely from your lips. Words that I have heard so often when I have stumbled. And in the strength of those unmerited words, help me to go my way and to sin no more. If today you need to respond to the invitation, please do so by coming forward as we stand and as we sing. Is it for me, dear?